Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from Beijing. I'm your host, Kaiser Guo. This week, we'll be looking at some aspects of the legacy of Mao Zedong. Joining me this week here in the pop-up Chinese studios are regulars Jeremy Goldcorn of Danway.org. Hi, Jeremy, and thanks for taking over hosting these last week. Nice job. Thanks, Kaiser. And uh, Gadi Epstein, Beijing bureau chief for Forbes magazine. How's it going, Gadi? Good, thanks, Kaiser. Also with us today is David Moser, one of Beijing's true renaissance men, academic director of CET Beijing Chinese Studies by Day, virtuoso jazz pianist by night. And at all times, one of the more astute observer of things Chinese that I know. Welcome to Seneca, David. Gosh, thanks, Kaiser. <laughs> Today, uh, we're going to talk about Yuan Tongfei, a young and very popular history teacher here in Beijing who's created something of a firestorm of controversy with, among other things, his very frank critique of Mao. We're also going to discuss a subject that was raised in the New York Times by Emily D. Parker, a senior fellow at the Asia Society, in her essay, Censors Without Borders, Parker suggests that the reach of China's censorship is long indeed and that it's actually stifling voices that are critical of the Communist Party, even in the West. But first, let's jump right in with a topic that we've discussed a bit before in a previous podcast about Wen Jiabao and Hu Yaobang and the pian that Wen Jiabao wrote about his old mentor, Hu. So Richard McGregor, who is the former Beijing bureau chief of the Financial Times, and is now deputy news editor, is that right? Deputy news editor yes. at the FT in London. Uh, he has a new book out. I think it's out next month in June. It's called The Party, The Secret World of China's Communist Rulers. And Gotti, actually, you had a chance to read it recently. In fact, you're, you're working up a piece right now for Forbes. Is that right? That's right. I'm going to be writing about it. and Hopefully uh, that piece will be online by the time people listen to this. Okay, great. Uh, the journal, the Wall Street Journal, published an essay by McGregor, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of a, a good pricey. Of yeah, the book it's itself. pretty much an excerpt. Uh, oh, yeah, it's an excerpt. but uh, And it's, uh, it, it, it does sort of summarize some of the uh, issues he addresses in the book. It's an excellent book. Uh, I would say instantly a must-read for anybody who wants to understand how China works. Uh, it's not just a political book. It's a business book. I mean, it basically talks about, and it's also it's also a book about rule of law. It's a book about almost every aspect of Chinese society because the party party's permeates influence permeates all, the, all, all of that. Classes. And this explains the kind of hidden and extended reach of the party. There's all sorts of delicious little gems in there. I remember the, the piece in the Wall Street Journal started off with uh, something that I thought was just utterly fascinating, which was uh, the the red machine. Correct, the red machines, which it sort of just reveals <laughs> the, the fiction behind this notion that uh, the Chinese big state companies are just acting independently of the government. Um, and when you have uh, basically red machines, these phones that are on the desks of 
of the top uh, top executives of the of the biggest state companies, three hundred some odd, right? and also on on the phones of the desks of the top leaders, uh, basically mm. three hundred people, three hundred some odd people in all. It reveals that there is this the elite network cabal that actually runs. <laughs> basically, there is an elite network uh, in in China, and it really uh, you can just imagine the kind of uh, information that flows uh, amongst the very top of Chinese society, politics, and business. Jeremy, you've got one of these on your desk at Danway. Is that right? <laughs> That's correct, yeah. So as a member of the secret cabal, t- tell me a, l- a little bit about uh, how this actually works, how, uh, of course, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, but the idea being that the, these are highly encrypted phones, that they can't just use ordinary Blackberries like everyone else. Is That's right. Yeah. Well, we know about Blackberries in China. Huh? He has great tales in there of how, like, in the 90s, before cell phones were prevalent, uh, you'd have uh, people coming in from maybe investment banks that are looking for top officials, and they'd try to use the phone while the guy's out of the office uh, uh-huh. to reach somebody. Uh, it's a pretty interesting kind of revelation that's just a sort of indicative of the kind of details he has. I mean, it's, it's strange. Presumably this system has been in place for a while, and why haven't any of us heard of it before? Uh, how did McGregor get this stuff? This is just this yeah. is great. Well, he's got great material on that. He's got great material on the San Lu case, the, the tainted milk case, yeah, and of sort course. of how the party's decisions at, at every level and every stage determine the outcome, you know, the path of that case. So can you From sh- cover up to, to it not being exposed uh, even later on, and then eventually the legal uh, sort of ramifications where people were prevented from suing, uh, to even the decisions by the board of the company which is, of course, gets back to this issue of the big state companies. You have decisions that are made by the board being overruled by the party uh, or the party making decisions like removing the chairwoman and then the board rubber stamping it. Uh, you know, you know the, the, the major business decisions being made when, when they intersect with important political concerns uh, are being made by the party, not by the company. Well, I guess that's, that should surprise nobody. But right. still, I mean, having having that sort of cold, like McGregor presumably does, is, is it's very pretty revealing. McGregor seems to take issue with China watchers who I think, like me, emphasize change over continuity when it comes to, to the party. I, I would agree that some of the, the you know salient features of the basic Leninist party structure definitely remain in place. Um, the methods of control over personnel and propaganda and, and the military, of course, but. I would also tend to see it as equally important that, you know, there was radical ideological departure from Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, um, whereas, you know, he still sort of seems to argue in this case that we're still dealing with the same bunch of communists. Uh, Jeremy, wh- what about you? How do you fall on this on this issue? Do you think that there's – I mean, I've constantly taken issue with people who who don't recognize the extent to which the party in power today, the party really that's been in power since Deng – has uh, radically departed from, I mean, has sort of built itself on opposition to the politics of the Cultural Revolution and the Gang of Four? Well, it's no longer a party of revolution, I, I, I think. I mean, that, that's certainly changed. And, uh, of course, the, the way that the government uh, used to control uh, Chinese people's private lives, that is, has radically changed. But I suppose the point that I do agree with is that the, the essential... Uh, mechanism by which the Communist Party rules China has not really changed. Yeah, I don't the Leninist apparatus, right, I think, right. is it's usually referred to. The fact that, um, you know, say for the Olympics, when they needed, you know, one million old ladies with red armbands to surround the city of Beijing, that could be arranged at merely a moment's notice is perhaps one example of how 
the structures of the party right, are still very much very in place. top-down transmission exactly. mechanisms mm-hmm. of party power. Was, uh, I was struck by reading that, or just the article, because I haven't read the book, obviously, but uh, the, the sort of tension between uh, saying that it, it remained you know, essentially the same party at its core, but then going on and on about how it, w- it, it was now... Uh, you know, asserting its its weight in the world, becoming you know economically powerful, and so on and so forth. And it struck me that that something that is not in the article is just the notion of the difference between control and governance. It it seems like that you know, in terms of the Leninist Party state, that they remain very much the control mechanism is still the same. But but in terms of governance, they are, they are indistinguishable from a lot of other countries on the surface. In, ter- in terms of, they still have to balance you know budgets. Sure. They still have to solve housing bubbles. And so on and so forth. So it's like there's a split uh, identity that they have between their sort of a modern, which uh, I think state, would, but they still at this at this queasy core is is this police state, right? And I, th- I don't think you would I don't think you would disagree with sort of the essential elements of what you're saying. Just that the notion that when a decision has important political ramifications, it's the party structure that supersedes, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't disagree with that either. No. And I think you're you're exactly right, Kaiser. That this is a and Jeremy, this is a Leninist structure. And uh, I think we, Kaiser and I, uh, both read this article recently by Steve Tsang yeah. about consultative Le- Leninism, which sort of kind of gets at what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. a, no, it's a good formulation of it, consultative Leninism. I right, think and it's it's all about the sort of pragmatic governance that, with the with the aim, the ultimate aim being to preserve the party in power. And so you have essentially a, a hybrid structure. But but and, and McGregor's point is that you have this Leninist structure. To, to a degree that you didn't even have uh, in the Soviet Union. And it, it, it kind of reaches very far down uh, into uh, the membership of the party. Um, the systems of control are pretty uh, extensive. Yeah, extensive and very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, back to Steve Tong's article. Tong, Tong, I don't know. It's one of those, you know, Wei Giles, T-S-A-N-G. Kuo, Kuo, which is a Kaiser. It's Kuo. It's Kuo for purposes of the Seneca podcast. One of the things that sort of bothers me about it is his insistence that the organizing ideology of the party is nationalism. Uh, this is something I think we're going to try to get into in a future podcast. We'll, we'll be talking you know, quite a bit about, uh, about nationalism, I think perhaps even next week. But um, I, my, my tendency is to think that, that there's been an overemphasis on this idea that nationalism is somehow at the <clears> core. <throat> Gotti and I were having a conversation earlier about this, and uh, I was suggesting that it really doesn't fit the definition, that, the textbook definition we all had in our political sciences classes as undergraduates. It's not the 19th century style of nationalism. It's certainly not the nationalism that animated the totalitarian regimes of the first half of, or the, the middle of the 20th century. Uh, we're not talking about, you know, the great destiny of a chosen people. Uh, do you think that nationalism has been sort of overplayed in its, in, as a descriptor of, of the ideological, you know, organizi- organizing of well, what, what about uh, uh, this guy Jacques Martin's thesis that China is really a civilization state? It's right? not his, right, right, right. That's not his. That's Lucian Pai, I think, is, is the yeah. first person. Does that, that fit into this, this question? I mean, Yeah, it, there's, it fits in, but I think that it fits in to, to suggest that it's a different breed of nationalism. Mm. I think that, you know, in, in my opinion, for what that's worth, uh, China is not altogether different from any of another number of, of countries that are you know, operating in this sort of a new, still a newish framework for them of, of the nation state as the primary actor. Mm. Well, and they've been trying to sort of shoehorn this, this civilization state into it. I, I do agree with you that nationalism is not the ideology, certainly, of this party. I think the ideology of this party is whatever it takes to 
uh, remained in power. Yeah. Right. And nationalism is a tool. And yeah. I think we, we discussed this before. And nationalism is sort of the adjunct to the heavy machinery uh, for what this party requires to stay in power. Hmm. Right. But I mean, getting back to the, what, what I was suggesting earlier about this this radical break in, in ideology, there's a tendency for all of us to sort of snicker at some of the, the ideological formulations that came out of the 90s uh, and, and, and all, uh, also particularly out of the early uh, earlier part of this decade. Um, Sangadaibial, for example, the three represents uh, where I, mean, I, I read McGregor, uh, at least that article, and uh, again, it, I, I feel like it's it's given sort of short shrift. It's glossed over as, you know, oh, now they've incorporated uh, the capitalists into the machinery of the party. That to me seems like a very significant difference. I mean, the inclusion of the quote unquote most advanced forces of production. He does not give it short shrift in the book. Talks, oh, good, good. There's an entire chapter about how the party reaches into private enterprise, and Sangadabia was a part of that. And uh, he kind of uses an example in one Joe of private enterprises competing with each other to hire former government officials um, into you know to start their party cells to uh, so sort of uh, kind of extend their sort of network uh, into the party, reaching back into uh, into the party. So mm-hmm. that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that is. Um, I want to actually move on. I think, uh, Gotti, uh, there's a long line now behind you to, to actually read McGregor's book. Right. And I want to remind everyone that uh, by the time you hear this podcast, Gotti's piece on McGregor's book should be out in Forbes. Right? Yeah, on Forbes.com. Okay, so let's all check that out and, and talk about it again. Jeremy, David, I'm sure you guys have, have uh, noticed this new phenomenon that it was all over the Internet last week and uh, in, in, in weeks past. First pointed out to me by my wife about a month ago. Uh, Yuan Tongfei, who is a lecturer at a a middle school actually here in Beijing called the Jinghua Xiaoxiao, uh, he first caught the public eye when he was selected to appear on a very prestigious history show on CCTV 10 called Bai Jia Jiang Tan, the Hundred Schools uh, Discussion Forum, where he did a series of lectures on the history of the northern and southern Song, which I believe is his research area. He's actually the youngest lecturer. The guy was born in 72, so he's, what, 38 years old, um, 37 maybe. He's he's uh, highly controversial, mainly, though, because of con- uh, remarks that he made about Chairman Mao, which brings, brings us back to the topic of today's podcast. What was it, Jeremy, um, that, that made him so controversial? Well, uh, he has actually been saying controversial things for several years. It's not just this recent flare-up of Chairman Mao. He's been saying, talking about freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and other issues. Um, the the recent controversy was comparing uh, Mao's mausoleum on Tiananmen Square to the Yakasuni Shrine and saying, you know, why do we have a, a murderer, basically, at the heart of our country? <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I, I think as background... Let me uh, read from something uh, Eric Mu of my website, Dunway, uh, wrote about Yuan, which is what's interesting about Yuan is not so much about what he has to say, rather the fact that he uses his teaching job as a channel to disseminate an alternative history view. What he says is not really original. He really just echoes some what they call in China liberal rightist views from more prominent people. But What's interesting is because he's a high school teacher, they're not like university professors. They have less prestige and less cultural freedom. Their role is supposed to be to prepare students to get high grades rather than develop independent minds. And that explains why Yuan's nonconformist attitude triggers wide questioning as to his qualifications as a high school teacher. Huh. Hmm. 
Well, he was certainly a breath of fresh air. I mean, I, I mean, the, the guy, you, you've all heard him speak now. He is absolutely charismatic. He's, he's humorous. He's very well-spoken. Right? Yeah. Well, I was watching the, the video uh, last night uh, with my wife, and uh, was just I was writing down things he said, just, you know, Bon Mo's one after the other, and quite an incredible stuff. I have to admit, when I first saw this video, I thought he was speaking to a group of college students, and it, it sort of astounded me that, that these were high school kids he was talking to. Right. But here are some of the things that I just jotted down. He, he several times said that, that, uh, that Mao was on a par with, with Stalin and Hitler as some of the greatest uh, mass murderers or dictators of all time. Which is something that, you know, is commonly said about Mao outside of China. Right? But not in a, high, in a Chinese high school. That's right. Yeah, see. Uh, he said that like all dictators, he was deluded and idiotic. He believed the <laughs> syn- sycophantic lies that the people told him. Uh, he talked in detail about the the Great Leap Forward uh, and, and, and the three starvation. Yeah, right. and, and, and he said, for example, uh, that, that it's a lie that, that you hear that, the, that the, the starvation was the result of the Zuren Zai Hai, the sort of natural, natural disasters. disasters. He says this was Ren Zai and it was Mao Zai. <laughs> it was a, a Mao, Mao disaster. disaster. A Mao made disaster. A Mao made, a Mao made disaster. That's good. That's good. He, said, um, he said that Mao uh, it said that he was a romantic, you know, a poet. He said, he said that he was totally unsuited for governance, that he was uh, wild and impetuous, would say anything that came to his, to his mind. Most famously, he said that the only good thing that Mao did since taking power in 1949 was to die. To die, <laughs> yes. And, and, and what I really like is he's, he's telling these kids, these are high school kids, he's right. saying, you can go to the Mao mausoleum if you want. And he says, you can sanguan, but you cannot sanbai. Right. Which I would translate as you can pay a visit, but don't pay respects because he d- doesn't deserve any. Because it's the Yasukuni shrine. Yeah. Right. The other thing that he said um, that I, is really, really controversial, even pe- Chinese people who, 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 who hate uh, Mao Zedong uh, sometimes will you know, defend China's Tibet policy. And he made comments to the effect that the People's Liberation Army invaded, uh, conducted mm-hmm. an armed invasion of Tibet, which is really uh, even more taboo than saying bad things about Mao Zedong in China. Right. What's the popular reaction been to him? I know he's been he's been pilloried by a lot of the uh, more nationalistic the people on, on the, the Fenqing on the internet, but he's also you know quite beloved. I was of course I, w- I worked for Yoku.com, and that was where you know there was a huge pile of his stuff, which was getting just a ton of views until yeah. we were, you know, of course, required to, to remove it, not surprisingly. Can I, can I interject something here? Because Absolutely. we're all old China hands or something. But I, I have to admit that, like, like you, I didn't really hear about this guy until a few months ago. Right. And I knew he had a book out. So I thought, well, it must not be that shocking if, he had, if he's, you know, Published. a CCTV star and he's got a book. And then when I actually saw it, I was astounded. And it, it's sort of like as a, someone who's lived here a long time, if you had, if you had said to me, a year ago, that, that there was a high school teacher who could say these things to his class and be, you know, these these things could be put online, and that he would have a following, and he wouldn't be immediately arrested. I would say, oh, no, you don't understand China. This is impossible. <laughs> it just could not happen, and yet, and yet here it's happening. So what I does really it mean? It. So what, what does it mean? Does it mean I mean do, is demalification in the wind now? Well, my definitely well, not. Well, my theory is one of the theories is that. They've already gone so far. I mean, it, the, the kids do know that the official party uh, verdict is that he was two-thirds. No, yeah, 70, seven, of course, it's 70. It's always 70, 70% correct and 30% incorrect, which right. in my class is a failing grade. You know? <laughs> and, but, but then also... I think it's uh, a C minus in most universities. And like, like a good professor here, I brought the textbooks here today. I brought here these copies of the, of the current high school you know, textbooks. And they have, you know... 
they mention the Great Leap, they mention the Cultural Revolution, and they effectively blame Mao. So I think that he may have been sort of taking advantage of this gray area right. where they don't really say exactly what you can or can't say and, and, and just went, <laughs> went nuclear on it. It's just unbelievable how far he went. I, I do think this shows that uh, that the Communist Party has figured out they're resilient enough that they can take a little bit of this. Uh, but I don't think it's not going to go as far as demalification because Mao is it's not like de-Stalinization because Mao is is Lenin and Stalin combined. Right. <laughs> yeah, so right. you can't really uh, you can't you can't uproot your founder completely. But I think you can allow a little bit of space uh, for some of this kind of um, kind of outlet uh, of you know. Venting outrage, or... but but God, he's like not like a little bit of space. It, to me, it seems in the video that he went all the way. He said anything I would have said in my most drunken, rant, you know. Right. But the video has been basically wiped right. from the Chinese internet. But I mean, so, a, yeah. well, yeah, but I mean, not wiped thoroughly. There's still plenty out there right now. I mean, we still have on Yoku, for example, plenty of interviews with him where he does go ahead and he says contentious things. He says. Uh, he, he sort of defends a lot of the comments that he's made earlier without making – without yeah. repeating them. I'm sure there's heartburn over it, but I also kind of want to keep it on the margins as much as possible without making a bigger deal out of it. I thought it was, it, was, it was interesting that, that the PSB actually went out of their way to declare that he had not been arrested. I've never seen that actually happen mm. before where they, they've you know, deliberately gone out and dispelled rumors that were circulating that, that – Actually, Yun Tung Fei had been picked up. Well, to come back to the McGregor book for a second, the last chapter is about the party controlling history. And kind of one of the, the surprising payoffs at the end of this chapter in which he talks about how important it is for the party to control the narrative of its history is that the author of this book, Tombstone, uh, Yang Jishan, mm-hmm. who talks about the Great Leap Forward in you know, quite some detail. And uh, that he has not been arrested either. He hasn't been formally punished and uh, continues to be able to give interviews and, uh, you know, has – has done okay. So much to his perhaps his own surprise. Uh, so that's an interesting. But you know, I think there's a generational thing here. The Great Leap Forward, people who were <clears throat> intimately involved in the organization, if you or the disorganization of the Great Leap Forward, are no longer around, basically, in China. Whereas the Cultural Revolution is still much more sensitive. And I think the reason for that is that a lot of the people who did terrible things are actually in positions of power or related to people in positions of power. I mean, there was a film a few years ago about the first high school teacher to be killed in Beijing, uh, uh, yeah. Zhong, uh, Zhong Bianyun, I think her name was. And that school was a school attended mostly by party elite uh, children. And that film was really wiped off the internet. It was the first time Dunway sort of almost got blocked. We had basically a, some kind of filtering thing uh, affected the page that we were writing about it. And then it slowly started to take over the whole site. And we had to move the server and stuff. To, yeah, <laughs> of course, you know, who well, cares now? But, um, you know, th- th- there's a different issue there because the people who were involved in the killing, the beating to death of this high school teacher, they're still around. Mm-hmm. This is this is the incident that was written about by Shujin Eberlein. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that, I, right. I don't. I should, there's a I'll very good film about it by Hujia. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're on to something. There's more tolerance for two narratives to coexist when you're talking about the 50s, and you're talking about Mao's crimes. You can have the official narrative where you know they still have it. Lushan, uh, you know, this is where Mao first heard that there might be some problems with the Great Leap <laughs> Forward. Uh, but you can also have the um, this other narrative of criticism, this undercurrent. Uh, mm-hmm. it's more tolerated when it's that much longer ago and you're not talking about the current leadership. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, even uh, when one goes back, it, it will be interesting to see what the limits are. One of the things I always find interesting about Beijing history is that many Beijingers don't know that this used to be an apartheid city. If you were Han Chinese, unless you had an official position, you couldn't go into central Beijing. You had to stay in the south, in yeah, Dashalar. Yeah. And, you know, when you tell many very highly educated Chinese people this, sometimes they're surprised. They didn't know about this. This is living history. It's 100 years ago. Well, until you used the word apartheid, I, I hadn't conceptualized it that way. It was so an apartheid state. Yes, if you were course. Han Chinese, you weren't allowed in. I mean, right. it was like Johannesburg. Yeah. Um, and uh, this doesn't fit very well with the glorious sweep continuous sweep of 5,000 years of Chinese culture that the party likes to promote these days. Will you see a shift in that? You know, I can imagine history teachers talking about it, but I don't think it's going to make it into the textbooks very clearly. Right. You don't, you don't officially allow this kind of talk, but you perhaps tolerate a little bit on the side. It's sort of the, I think that's the pragmatic approach the party takes is why someone doesn't get arrested uh, and they make a deal of you know, they make a deal out of that. And don't so. you think they've given up on some domains? This, with Mao, this, this is kind of an area they're giving up on because there's know. too much I don't know there. that they're totally – I don't want to say they're giving up on it, but I would say that they're – uh, they're smart about where to apply right. pressure. Allowing some anarchy around the edges, basically. Yeah. Right. Sure. And, and, and what's at the core anymore? I mean, what's left in, in the actual veneration of the man? I mean, I think that it's a, just t- t- speaking not just to intellectuals, but to you know people in all walks of life that I encounter, like my idiot rock musician friends. Uh, I'm sorry. Sorry, <laughs> idiot rock musicians. Uh, they, they have I'm sort of the same take on the man that, you know, really – yeah, we we have to appreciate his you know his greatness and uh, his vision in actually founding the state. Uh, that by the time of collectivization, it all went to hell. I um, mean, by the mid nineteen fifties, um, th- that seems to be sort of the widely accepted view of him. Uh, no sure. one really complains loudly that his vis- his visage appears on the money on you know every goddamn note. Uh, and of course, the verdict on him is seventy percent correct, thirty percent wrong. Is of course. It's widely reversed. Right, it's widely reversed. Yeah, seventy percent incorrect. Exactly. Uh, I must say, I I find every time I I find myself on the (laughs) Bund in Shanghai in one of those bars or restaurants, I kind of long for a bit of Maoism to return. I I sometimes (laughs) feel a great deal of sympathy with the original aims of the Chinese Revolution, the Second Chinese Revolution. Jeremy Goldcorn, sponsor of the Communist Party of China. Um, well, um, you, you may be actually a victim of the sort of self-censorship that we'll, we'll discuss next. New York Times ran this terrific piece, actually. she's uh, Emily Parker has written a few pieces in recent months, many of them about the Internet. And I've actually found myself agreeing with what she has to say, only very rarely. Um, she's kind of solidly in what I describe as the techno-utopian camp, uh, the Twitter and Facebook will save the world camp. She's writing a book right now about the Internet and democracy. Uh, Emily Parker, who I don't know personally, um, I've communicated with her. She is the uh, she's a senior associate at the Asia Society. Uh, but her piece was fascinating. I thought it was it really touched on something that uh, we've re- we've all talked about before. Uh, David actually wrote some years ago under a pseudonym, uh, a not very subtle pseudonym, <laughs> Anne Condi, uh, about the anaconda in the chandelier, uh, which was a, a terrific metaphor that Perry Link. Uh, used to describe the type of sort of subtle and insidious censorship uh, that the Chinese Communist Party imposes beyond its own borders. Uh, Censors Without Borders is the name of of Emily Parker's piece. Um, You start off that piece with a terrific quote from Link's uh, essay. In sum, the Chinese government's censorial authority in recent times has resembled not so much a man-eating tiger or 
fire-snorting dragon as a giant anaconda coiled in an overhead chandelier. Normally, the great snake doesn't move. It doesn't have to. It feels no need to be clear about its prohibitions. Its constant silent message is, you yourself decide. How ominous. And uh, let's, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, uh, the, the thing that Emily Parker opens with is a book uh, called Egg on Mao, written by a Canadian writer and economist by the name of Denise Chong. Um, the subtitle of, of, of the book Egg on Mao is actually The Story of an Ordinary Man Who Defaced an Icon and Unmasked a Dictatorship. The, it, it tells the story of a guy named Lu Le Chung who was a bus mechanic uh, during 1989. He'd come up from the hinterland, I think from from. Sichuan or from Hunan, Hunan, Hunan from Hunan, and along with a, a couple of his worker friends, found sort of a, a not very warm welcome by the students who were still very much in charge of things in the square and decided to do something drastic. He filled a bunch of eggshells with paint and hurled them at the iconic portrait of Mao that tops Tiananmen Gate itself. Was this an anti-China book? Was this were the State Department and other organizations who apparently disinvited Ms. Chong uh, were they justified in this for fear of offending China, or was this over the top? I think a lot of that goes on. I don't think it's new. I have to, especially with academics. Absolutely I mean, I not think there new, are yeah. academics who've been self-censoring in order to preserve their access to Chinese archives uh, for for a long, long time. I also, I mean, personally, I have experience with uh, the fact that uh, certainly business people in China have no balls. Uh, foreign business people. I've been disinvited from a chamber of commerce uh, panel discussion because one of the other panelists felt that I was too political. This was after my website was blocked. Well, I think you, you see, need to uh, say good things about Mao a few more times, <coughs> and you'll be, you'll be back on there. <laughs> well, I, I think I think this is very common. There's a lot of self censorship. Da- David's essay uh, about the self censorship that foreigners do when they appear on Chinese TV and stuff is is very penetrating, and I do, I do think it extends to uh, many facets of. Uh, Westerners, Americans' interactions with China. So there is a point there. David, you, you tell, tell us about this essay. I'm not everyone's read it. It's terrific. I'll, I'll make sure to put a link up on the on the podcast website. Yeah. Well, in, in that case, I won't talk about it too much in detail. But just the the basis of it was that I was invited to this CCTV show, in which uh, they had uh, Zhao Qijong, who at that time was uh, you know the minister, the office of information, right, and Sun Zhaozheng, who at one time was the head of SARF, and, and and you know these people, SARF people, is the State Administration right. of Radio, Film, and Television. And these, yeah. you know, if any two people are can be blamed or you know, at the locus of the of the uh, Chinese uh, information control apparatus, it's it's them, you know. But here, these foreigners were invited to have a open and frank dialogue with these two men. And you look around the room at the studio, and there were ambassadors, there were old China hands, there was lots of business people. Yeah, Chamber of Commerce people. Chamber of Commerce people, people who'd been in China for 20 or 30 years that I'd had conversations with. And as this this so-called frank and open conversation proceeded, uh, we foreigners began to just sit there and and let the the two of them spout their nonsense. And we'd know nobody challenged it. Nobody said You know, wait a minute. You guys control this. It's ridiculous. Right. Uh, when they bring up the importance of the movie business uh, and how, how can we get more movies shown in the West, yeah. they don't mention that the, the movies that are most successful have been banned in China. Yes. Right. Uh, they, uh, they don't they just completely skate over the censorship issues and the foreigners never challenge them. It was a very interesting yeah. point and it Great raised piece. this yeah. question of – which I think all of us foreigners have had in China of 
when do we want to be part of this show that they put on? Right. Well, a lot of us have been part of shows. I mean, David, you're you're a frequent guest yeah. on CCTV Nine. I I'm frequently on Dialogue. I do my best to try to you know be something of a gadfly when I'm there. But uh, Jeremy, you 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 have the occasional appearance uh, on state-run television or in state-run media, don't you? Yeah, I'm in Chinese media quite quite frequently. I mean, I, I, I generally try and avoid talking about anything uh, that's not frivolous because um, because of this reason, but not always. I mean, I <laughs> oh, think that's the, the, the um, experience that I've had that was sort of most shocking to myself was uh, Rose uh, Liu, uh, Liu, Qi, uh, Liu uh, Lue, uh, invited me to be on Phoenix TV to discuss internet censorship. And before the show, she said, you know, uh, you can say anything you want, but be a fun down. You know, don't oppose, the, don't like, you know, call for the downfall of the party. And I kind of switched on some kind of Chinese TV censorship mode. And I didn't say the same things I would have said if it wasn't a Chinese TV station. And at the end of it, she said to me, but you were the foreigner. You were supposed to be a bit more controversial. And I said, yeah, you know what? I don't think I'll do this again. It's just, you know, uh, if you tell me... I'm not supposed to oppose the party. I, I don't want to get you in trouble. How can I do this? You know, it's just well. This is the not... problem. You know, it, it, this, with this anaconda metaphor, because because it's always there, and you don't know when it's going to strike. You know, the the, the the party control apparatus is is reactive, not proactive. It waits until something crosses the line, and we don't know where that line right. is. Right, we don't know the line is. So everyone tends to be overly cautious. I mean, this Yuan uh, Fei maybe is a proof of that. Who would have thought the line could be that far? Uh, well, it's not, obviously. I mean, he's been... Well, but he's been for a year, as you say. He went for a long time before being, you know, uh, corralled. But the point is that uh, there's a, the point at which this, this uh, you know, this line is, blends in with just something you might just call civility. I mean, right. in Jeremy's case, I mean, you know... Well, there's two different issues here, aren't there? There's, there's both the issue of what, what, what repercussions do you fear? Right. Uh, well, we which is much more important for academics, I think, to be concerned right. about right. than for journalists. Uh, I think there's a, a lot, there's wide scope given to foreign journalists. Yeah, you're afforded a certain protection. Uh, and so we're afforded a certain protection. The issue that journalists have to face is this other one of uh, how complicit are we? Is it how much is civility and how much is it are, that we are sort of contributing to the legitimacy of what they are putting yeah. on, which is not an issue when you're doing an entertainment program as much, although right. in that sense, we're already we're all here. We've already decided to engage with China, so we are already complicit in that That's sense. Right. We're already so, shills for um, the government. <laughs> it's an issue of, you know, so when I'm asked, let's say, to do an interview, if, if it's something for, a, you know, CCTV and it's going to be on a political issue, I think I definitely... Demur. You shy away. And, you demur, yeah. But if it's something like where I know the journalist and he's just trying to do his job for some other kind of unrelated piece, then I'm happy to cooperate. You know, you have to kind of figure it out yourself. I, I'm reminded, uh, thinking about SARS in 2003, it was an example of that you're always on display as a foreigner. Mm. If you remember the famous SARS press conference yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. in April 2003 when they finally admitted that there was this huge problem in China uh, and in Beijing. I was there and, uh, you know, we're all, you know, this is, and it's an amazing, you know, kind of historic newsworthy moment and uh, we're all ready to go and write our big stories about the sacking of the uh, health minister and the, and, the, and the mayor of Beijing. And uh, I, I hear the next day from uh, uh, one of my Chinese friends, uh, oh yeah, I saw you on, uh, I saw you on TV. Uh, they showed one reaction shot during the press conference, and it was us laughing at the official's uh, joke. So, show, you know, the foreigners here, we, you see, we're all sort we're of all uh, chummy here. Happy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, that's just a classic example. They're always looking for that angle when it's the big, you know, when, the, when it's the big news events, they're looking for that angle. Yeah. And you have to be, you know, wary of that. 
Yeah, but the civility issue too. I mean, as you if you work here, especially if some people who work in media, these not these are not uh, you know shadowy government officials. These are people that you have to work with. And yeah. it's, it's we're, we're not things. really today. We're not talking about. I mean, we're we're different. We live here. I think we have a certain. You know, uh, I think we get a dis- dispensation for our cowardice because. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you. That's what I was. My point I was about to and make. And let it be. So you well, you have Let friends. it not be disputed. I mean, we are all you, cowards. Yes. Because you have friends that you don't want to hurt. You don't want to hurt. That's right. Yeah, that's what I tell be, people. Well, right. At least right. that's what you tell people. Yeah. Right. You don't want to give them a hard time. I mean, no, you They're don't. just trying to make a living too. And so no. we are guests but, in this country. <laughs> we are. And we that's are. actually that's actually a very serious, important point to remember. We are guests here, and so there is some level of civility that we should introduce. I think there's a well, level yeah. of civility, but not servility. I mean, I, I do uh, think people should go a little a little further in terms of speaking their mind. I mean, uh, you know, as I've just admitted, I mean, I have engaged in many acts of self-censorship. But I also think that I've done it a little bit less than many of the people around me. And I do think... Don't uh, glower at me when you say that. I'm not glowering at you. I'm, I, I'm thinking... For the of, record, Jeremy is looking directly at Kaiser. Yes. No, that's just because uh, uh, he's in my line of sight. <laughs> <laughs> Are you self-censoring, Jeremy? <laughs> but I mean, I, I think, yeah, we're guests. But um, on the other hand, uh, this is an important thing to think about. If you are somebody who makes public appearances in China, where do you draw that line? And I do think that... Foreigners tend to be a lot more cowardly than they need to be. That's right. Well, I, and I do That's feel, right. as a journalist here, I do feel completely free to speak critically about China because I think you're also doing a service to the right. to the country and to its people mm-hmm. uh, when you speak directly about its problems and, and write directly about its problems. I totally agree with you. You shouldn't we shouldn't the, go as far the, as. And the uh, irony of all this is, I, I think I speak for everyone in this room that that if 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 we were totally free to speak our minds, then in fact I think that we would give a pretty fair and even in many cases very positive evaluation of China as a whole. So it's kind of strange that we feel that we have to self-censor in these situations when we don't have any any reason to apologize for our, for our opinions. I, I think we could we go on with the mea culpas for, for quite a while <laughs> about this. But let's, uh, let's talk specifically then about abroad, how this actually impacts academics, for example. Uh, I have good friends whose research areas are uh, Xinjiang, for example who have been denied visas. Mm. Right. We have uh, the, the one guy that my, my wife calls Hao Jiao Shou and another called Huai Jiao Shou. They're both Xinjiang experts. I'll leave you guys to figure out who's who. And uh, both of them have had trouble, you know, actually getting into into China in the past. But for things that they've written that that are too, by my lights, actually quite innocuous. Uh, I've in, in, in Ms. Parker's essay, she talks about how a lot of graduate students now are shying away from topics that might lead them into hot water. Perry Link talks about how he's, he's frequently asked by graduate students, how do I avoid getting out of that blacklist that you're on? Right. He gets that question he says four or five times a month. Yeah. And I think, you know, Jeremy was saying this is not new, but I do think it's an expanding problem as China becomes more, you know, more of a story, more of yeah. a subject of study, yeah. more influential in the world, and it can, it can extend its reach. Uh, beyond its borders is part of Emily Parker's point is the ex- exporting of censorship. And part of it is the internet, right? I mean, part of it is the fact right. that nothing that gets written in English is no, not any, any of import is not translated into Chinese. Right. Everything is... It used to be just whatever made it into the Sankao Xiaoxi, but now it's it's ubiquitous. Right? 
Well, that's that's a good point. Yeah, that's that's true. In the old days, there used to be an effective sort of uh, firewall. I mean, a sort of linguistic <laughs> firewall. firewall, bamboo uh, wall. Yeah, bamboo wall having to do with uh, English didn't make it into Chinese. But that, yeah, you're right. Global Times or Sangao Xiaosi. Yeah, they, even trivial uh, you know media stories are routinely translated in Sangao Xiaosi now. It's, it's, and and experts are quoted at length. So and the same is true the other way around now. Nothing gets written in Chinese that isn't translated into English. Uh, you know, beyond foreign broadcast information service, even there's there's quite a bit now. There's a whole cottage industry of bloggers out there who are, are doing bridge blogging, who are translating any tweet of significance from any any anyone in China. So, are the people who are particularly guilty of this people who have the most access to to power actually because their careers depend on it? I mean, I'm thinking of when I was in graduate school that. And this is right after the Tiananmen Square incident that uh, a lot of famous professors who were called to go on TV uh, were criticized, uh, you know, some of my professors for uh, going easy on the government because they didn't want to rock the boat. They wanted to get back into China as soon as possible to get access back with these officials. And I guess that still exists today. But it it seems like, uh, you know, the the most influential voices are the ones who are precisely most susceptible to this kind of self-censorship. Well, it's a corollary of the Bob Woodward issue, although with this formal (laughs) issue of censorship. And, and, you know, when when you have, uh, I mean, there's, of course, it's completely not analogous in terms of censorship. But it is a little bit analogous in terms of, uh, you know, what is the result. And in Bob Woodward's case, you know, gives access to all of these high-level officials. And the result is something that sort of parrots what they yeah. Um, or he gets sorry. He gets access That's to all right. these high level officials. But then his work is and, uh, is, is sort of milk toast. Right. Right. And uh, it's a bit. It's a more. It's a bit more insidious in the case of uh, coverage of China. It's um, it's certainly an issue for for academics who uh, want to come back into China. I mean, I mean, as you say, Paralink still can't come in. In the twenty one years or so since Tiananmen, since uh, the uh, eighty nine student demonstrations began, have things gotten better? Do you feel, do you think things are trending in a better direction now in terms of this self-censorship phenomenon? David? Uh, I think two things. I mean, one one thing, there's such a volume of, of, of Chinese-related stuff in English and magazines and books now. I mean, I wouldn't, Jeremy or one of you guys could estimate, you know, but from from when I was going to graduate school, it's, it's certainly exponentially, maybe 10,000 times much more. And it's just harder to, it, it, it's less likely that you're going to be caught out or anyone's going to notice any particular book or any particular note mention of Mao or, or anything like that. You know, that's one obvious thing. There's an avalanche of information now. But, uh, but the other thing is I think that there, there has the, – the people in charge now, I mean, you get the feeling that they've got so much on their plate. There's so much to worry about now. And I – and despite, you know, I said a minute ago that they've given up on Mao. I didn't quite really mean that. But I think there's whole domains that in, in effect – they have, uh, if not given up, they, they've kind of loosened to such an extent that they just really don't care anymore uh, what you say. And so I, I think those two combined creates a situation where uh, the anaconda may be there, but it's it's getting kind of old and creaky and well, <laughs> it just hasn't moved in 10 years. As the exception of those Xinjiang scholars indicates, or maybe not the exception. That was a few years ago too. Uh, but it does – the important element is still there of uncertainty yeah. and uh, the the restraint and that, that, that then – causes people to show in their 
That's true. If I may diss on the business community again rather than academics. <laughs> Please. Um, uh, I, I found get, that. Get a pitch uh, for Maoism back but, in the but, Yeah, a bit of Maoism. Uh, you know, business people tend to be the most cowardly. And one of the jokes I enjoy playing on, you know, when you, as somebody's lived in Beijing for a long time, you occasionally get invited to those dinners where there's some rich douchebag in town and he wants to know, you know, if there's a selection of guests who you know different uh, things. And a few times it's happened to me where you have somebody like that and they, 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 they want to ask a question and they go, so do people talk about uh, Tiananmen Square? Like, <laughs> is it okay to, like, you know, what about, like, Charles Young? And they whisper the name of something that they think maybe if they say it in a restaurant will get them into trouble. And what I like to do is to say, were you asking about Zhao Ziyang? The guy, you know, the Tiananmen Square Massacre guy, really loud in his restaurant. Do you think the, uh, do, at that point, do the plants then start bending towards your table? <laughs> the chandelier I'm, I'm, thinking of all the, I'm thinking of all the podcast listeners that had to pull their earphones out just now. I apologize but anyway, the for any hearing loss that may have. Dushback usually, you know, goes red or, or very pale sometimes. So um, I, I do think, you know, it is a problem with academics. Uh, the, the, the group that I have a problem with other business people though right yeah. right 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 well, I mean, they have there's, there's considerably less expectation for them right, to step not, up and they, be noble. They haven't made a pledge of right uh, academic of, integrity right, right. and scholarship. Right, right. They so, have made a pledge for the bottom line. That's right. Okay, fair enough. So you know, be fair to them. Be fair to them, Jeremy. Yeah, but you know, uh, can this we get the brought to you by the American Chamber of Commerce? <laughs> <laughs> Just to put a plug in for the party. I mean, I mean, uh, they are. I mean, you've met. We met some, you know. Uh, we met some the other day. You know, they they are they're not, uh, you know, ogres, gremlins. I mean, I mean, they, they and it is a new generation. A lot of the the old red versus expert days are over, and these people it's are been resolved are, in favor of experts. Uh, David, I mean, uh, you you referred to that we were at the Ministry of Culture together, right. and I mean, the people who were there did not really self censor. I mean, they called right. a spade a spade. We right. we told them the unpleasant truths about why Chinese culture isn't yeah. really doing that well on the world stage, and they were pretty receptive. Yeah. And nobody yeah. self censored. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, there's progress. Yeah, I think uh, so. actually, I mean, from speaking from my experiences on on CCTV nine as a frequent guest with. Yang Ray on CCTV9 Dialogue. <laughs> I uh, actually find that I'm able to say quite a bit. I'm, yeah. I'm encouraged to say quite a bit. I've been able to, you know, speak very candidly about Chinese internet censorship, my opposition to it. Uh, I think I, this is, though, not an indication of progress so much as an indication of this consultative Leninism, to bring it back to uh, earlier in our podcast. Sure. You know, this is, this is a pragmatic choice to, you know, put on a good face. Yeah, that's, yeah, they wouldn't, because they wouldn't have done it on CCTV, whatever else. Right. Least, I mean, yeah. it doesn't hurt them on CCTV 9. Right. Right. And it, it doesn't helps hurt them. them in a Ministry of Culture event. I mean, yeah, I mean no, not... this stuff is never given. It's always taken, right? We're, we're always, we, you know, we that's, have to push the envelope and it's, right. it's, not, it's not ever going to and be it's sort like, of, it's like questionable we, we, what kind of progress is being made when you do take that. We, we did a show where, where he said... Uh, do you think the, the the popularity of these human flesh search engines is because the government media is so heavily censored? Oh, that's right. I remember and, that. And I, I I was a bit stunned. Well, I was stunned because it was such a weird non sequitur. <laughs> but you know, I, I was one of those moments when I wanted to say, "Did I just hear you say that the government you work for censors its media?" I mean, that's what's going on here. But that, evidently, that's okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I think he's actually been given marching order. He's been told that he's supposed to do this. You know, it's part of this whole thing, the Global Times and and China Daily and all the English language media, in spite of the absence of this fire of this bamboo curtain we were talking about earlier. Uh, they are all sort of told to be more uh, aggressively yes, critical. Aggressive, critical right. of the Chinese, yeah. Right, because that plays well. And you'll see some of that in the Chinese media too because there has to be a bit of a release valve so that you don't have this sort of 
wild internet take control. Right. We must not have that. But to go back to the original question, I mean, what do you think should be done in Western academic institutions? Because, I mean, for example, if I was Perry Link and one of my students came up to me and asked me that question, like, what do I do to avoid being you? I'd say, oh, okay, funding, cut. Oh, you wanted to get into the master's program. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, the other side should fight back too, right? Yeah. Yes. Good yeah. point. Is that possible? Is that going to happen? Not when the university also wants to have partnerships with the people. The Confucius Institute. Right. Maybe not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, on that note, we really need to wrap up. We're, uh, we're running very long here, and I'm sure we've bored a lot of listeners to tears by now. Uh, <laughs> thanks again to Dave Lankshire and folks here at Pop-Up Chinese for allowing us to use their fine studio. And uh, thanks again to David Moser, to Gotti Epstein, and Jeremy Goldcorn. And we'll see you again next week on the Cynical Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.